John chapter 4, verses 35 through 42. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans went, sorry, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Ascends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for gathering us together in your name as your people. Father, now as we open your word, we pray that you would send your spirit to do what only you can open up our ears, eyes, hearts, and minds to receive these truths for what they are, the word of God and not the word of man. Lord, we pray that you would stir in us a vigor for missions, for evangelism. Lord, we pray that you would give us a great sense of our unworthiness to come before you, that we would have a great sense of the grace that you have shown to us in drawing us to yourself. And Lord, may that result in a passion uh, to see others come to faith, to, to experience what we have experienced. Lord, we pray that you would bless now the preaching of your word, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up our series in John, right where we left off. Uh, Jesus, at this point, has now finished his discussion with the Samaritan woman at the well, and she had become convinced that he is the promised Messiah. And so as we saw, the woman had gone back into the town and had begun testifying to the townspeople that Jesus had prophetic knowledge, that he had some supernatural knowledge. Um, and as a result of her testimony, many Samaritans had been coming to the well to meet Jesus and to learn from him. In the meantime, Jesus's disciples had returned from their task, and they were now urging Jesus to eat some of the food that they had brought. But Jesus took this firstly as an opportunity to teach his disciples uh, speaking that he has food that they know nothing of, and his food is to do the will of his Father. Now let's pick up now from verse 35. Jesus said, Do you not say, There are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes, and see that the fields are white for harvest. Now some have speculated that this phrase here, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest, was a proverb. Right? Jesus was quoting a well-known saying, and although this is possible, we don't have any other evidence to suggest that such a saying ever existed. Um, others have suggested that perhaps it was four months until the literal harvest, right? Maybe the crops had just been planted and they thought there was four months to go. Now, whatever the point was, I think the meaning comes through quite clearly. You might think that harvest is a long way off yet. But I tell you, look, and you will see that the harvest is ripe. 
Not a physical harvest of grain or produce, but a harvest of souls for eternal life. Verse 36. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, that sower and reaper may rejoice together. The fruit is ripe. Now, to put this very, very simply for the kids, um, a sower is somebody who scatters seed. Right, kids, have you ever seen your dad go put some grass seed in a little cart, and then he walks all over the lawn, and the thing spins, and it shoots seeds out everywhere? I've had to do that a number of times. Um, well, that, that is sowing seed. We're scattering seed. Uh, now, back before tractors and high-tech seeders, uh, what a farmer would do to plant his field is he would send out sowers, right? People who would go and scatter seed. They'd have a little sack uh, full of seeds, and they would take from that sack, and they would scatter the seed out over the field. Um, and then once the harvest was ripe, once that crop had grown, and it was ready to be taken off the field, roughly four months later, depending on the crop, uh, then the farmer would send out reapers. That is another name for a harvester, right? Somebody who would go and collect the crop from the field. So these two terms, sower and reaper, refers to the person who plants the field, who scatters the seed, and then the reaper is the one who comes and collects the harvest when it is ripe and brings it in. And so Jesus here is using the analogy, uh, which is a common one in the New Testament, of sowing and reaping to describe those, firstly, who preach the gospel, planting seeds, sowing seeds, uh, and then those who would reap the harvest of eternal life, the, the ones who would get to see the work come to its completion. And so Jesus says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Now, D.A. Carson writes that this statement from Christ calls to mind the promise of Amos 9 verse 13, which says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper shall be overtaken by the plowman and the planter, sorry, where the sower will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. And so the image here is of a time where the land is so productive that the harvest is ready and the reapers have begun harvesting and they've even caught up to the sowers before they've even finished sowing the field. Um, or planting the vineyard. And so Jesus may be using this image to describe the time that he is in, right? Already the one who reaps is gathering wages and receiving fruit for eternal life. So Jesus says, you thought the harvest was still four months away. Look around you and see that the harvest is white. The fields are white and the reapers are working. The harvest is here. It is now. And it is not a harvest of wheat from the field or of grapes from the vineyard. It is a harvest of souls, right? People receiving salvation, finding eternal life. As verse 30 had said, many Samaritans were coming out from the town to meet Jesus as a result of the woman's testimony. So Christ had said that his food was to do the will of his father, uh, to accomplish the work that was given him. And to do this work, Jesus said, was more satisfying <clears throat> than any food that the disciples could offer. 
Uh, Jesus and his disciples were now in the midst of a fruitful harvest. The fields were ripe. There is work to be done. Verse 37. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I, <coughs> pardon me. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now this would seem to apply very well to the immediate context, right? So Jesus had sown the word to the Samaritan woman. She then had labored by sowing seeds in the village. And now the disciples are finding themselves in the midst of a great harvest, one that they themselves had not labored for. However, there's no mention of the disciples receiving any particular assignment from Christ in this context. So it may be better to take this as a general statement from Christ about the mission the disciples have been given. Remember, the disciples have been commissioned as apostles of Jesus Christ. They will have a significant role to play. Uh, there is a great harvest about to begin, right? One that is, in fact, the culmination of the work of God through his prophets and through his spirit down through the centuries. God had been preparing for what he intended to do through the Messiah. He had revealed his purposes and types and shadows, as we often talk about. Uh, we see them in the Mosaic Law, showing the need for sacrifice, for a mediator in the priesthood, in the tabernacle and temple worship. Right? This could be seen as the preparation, the sowing of the seeds. God has sent many prophets who had revealed much of what the Messiah and his kingdom would be and would do. Until at last the fullness of time had come, the word became flesh, and the message went out, the time is fulfilled, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So from this view, then what Jesus is saying is that the sowers were the Holy Spirit and the prophets of old, and the disciples will now be commissioned to go out into this harvest, sent into the labors of those who had come before them. One sows and another reaps. The harvest then will be all those who come to faith in Christ. And so from this perspective, we would then see that the work of sowing and reaping a harvest for eternal life continues to be the assignment given to all faithful disciples of Christ. Right. This is a task for us. Now evangelism, right, telling others about Christ, evangelism, is not an easy thing for most Christians. Right? You may meet the rare person to whom it seems to come quite naturally, but I, I think by and large most people, many people would struggle in this area. Now, since we know that this is something that the Lord has assigned to his church, right, calling us to go and disciple the nations and the absolute authority that Christ had received, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, or the fact that Christians are called ambassadors of the heavenly kingdom and have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation, God making his appeal through us be reconciled to God as well as the fact that this uh, task is simply the inescapable conclusion that would be necessary if we would love God supremely. 
Right? If we love him supremely, our love for him will spill over in a desire to see others join us in our joy. Our desire to see God honored and glorified would compel us to proclaim the gospel. John Piper put it so well, missions exists because worship doesn't. Right? Missions exists because worship doesn't. We've seen that the Father is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. We who love God supremely, we who are zealous, passionate for the glory of God, must desire to see God glorified in all places, by all peoples, and at all times. There should be a holy discontentment in us to know that there are still so many places where God is not honored as he should be. There should be a holy discontentment in us to know that there is so much false and idolatrous worship in the world. We should have a zeal to see God receive the honor, worship, and glory that he is due. This must compel us to proclaim the gospel. And of course, we must also love our neighbors as ourselves. Love for neighbor also compels us to evangelize, to proclaim the gospel. It is a simple application of the golden rule. Kids, what's the golden rule? You know this one, I hope. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So work that one through and think of it in, uh, as it relates to evangelism. Right? Given what I know of Christ, what lengths would I hope that Christians would go to in order to reach me with the gospel if I were an unbeliever, right? if I were cut off from Christ? Right? The golden rule, love for neighbor, compels us toward evangelism. Or even on a societal level, do you desire to see culture shift? Would you desire to see positive cultural fruit? Would you like it? I hope you would. Uh, if Canadians would stop slaughtering unborn children, would stop celebrating sexual sin, would stop voting for legalized forms of government-sponsored theft and wealth, redistribution, right? All these societal ills, would you see a change? Then we must proclaim the gospel. Now, while of course we believe that Christians must engage in the public square, we would love to see Christians get involved in politics and civil service, right? To be salt and light in every area of society. We must always remember that the truest and most lasting societal change will not be imposed from the top down, but will come from the bottom up. What it requires is the kingdom of God manifesting. And the kingdom of God grows not at the point of a sword or a gun, but through the work of the Holy Spirit who transforms hearts. And the way that he ordinarily does this is through the proclamation of the gospel.
through Christians being faithful to proclaim the whole gospel of the kingdom to every area of life, making disciples and teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. So brothers and sisters, let us sow seeds generously. I think it's safe to say that part of why the church in Canada has not been as effective in making disciples as it could be is because, generally speaking, we tend to be stingy with our seeds. We do not scatter seed. Instead, we tend to get all anxious and worried about how even sowing one seed might be received. We tend to get nervous We tend to stop for fear of man, for fear of being laughed at or rejected. And so for many of us, it is very rare that we would even sow one seed, let alone scatter seed. Now, while I'd love to be proven wrong about this, my perception is that the average Bible-believing Christian in Canada does very little by way of evangelism. We can understand, perhaps you've tried once, This didn't go well. And so this bad experience has left you very apprehensive about wanting to try that again. But we must understand, this is exactly the reason that Jesus told his disciples the parable of the soils, parable of the sower. Remember that parable. The sower went out and he scattered seed and some of it fell on the path Some of it fell in the rocky soil, some fell among the thorns, but some fell on good soil. Jesus explains that the different soils were different responses to the gospel. In some people, there is no response at all. In others, there appears to be a response, but when trouble comes, they fall away and wither, for they had no root. But in some, that seed takes roots and bears fruit. And so Jesus tells his disciples this parable so that they will be prepared for the different responses they will receive when they scatter the seed of the gospel. Right? There will be some people in whom the seed never takes root. The seed falls on the path and is devoured by the birds. Right? These are people who will not receive what you said at all. They may even respond with hostility. So Jesus tells his disciples to expect these kinds of responses. Right? If you sow a seed and you are rejected, don't be discouraged. That's par for the course. Jesus told you to expect that this kind of thing would happen. What you must not do is get discouraged. What you must not do is stop sowing seeds. So one of the big things we are to learn from this parable is that in spite of the bad, the various bad soils we may encounter as we scatter seed, we are to learn that there is good soil out there. There is soil in which the seed that is sown will take root and bear fruit. John 10, 
Verse 16, Jesus, the good shepherd, says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. Christ has other sheep in Altona. Christ has other sheep who will hear his voice and follow him. There is good soil to be found. We also learn from this parable that the success of our evangelistic efforts, the success of our attempts in proclaiming the gospel and making disciples, the ultimate success is not in our hands. It is in the hands of our sovereign Lord. And so we learn that our task is faithfulness. Our task is faithfulness. The results are in God's hands. And that is liberating when it comes to evangelism and really to ministry generally. I've often said that I would have no desire to go up and stand in front of people to proclaim the word of God if the results were all up to me. No thanks. I'm, I'm not that persuasive, right? But the Spirit of God working through the faithful proclamation of the Word of God, that brings you confidence. The results are in the Lord's hands. So while we should always seek to do our best, it brings us great comfort and freedom to remember that we do not have the power in ourselves to change the hearts of others. It does not ultimately rest on our persuasiveness, our cleverness with words, our apologetic arguments, or our ability to answer every question we might receive. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 to 24. First Corinthians 1, 20 to 24, Paul writes, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So notice, what is it that makes the difference here? What's the deciding factor, according to Paul, as to whether Christ crucified will be a message received as folly and a stumbling block or as the wisdom and power of God? The difference, Paul says, is the inward call of God. Notice, to those who are called, Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. It is the seed landing on good soil. It is the call reaching the ears of Christ's other sheep that he has said are out there. Christ's sheep will listen to his voice. So notice the message is the same 
right? Jesus Christ and him crucified, that seed needs no modification, right? No GMO gospel seeds. Uh, The seed needs no help. Our task is not to make the gospel message fit with modern sensibilities. We do not need to alter or doctor the message of scripture in any way. We must simply be faithful to proclaim with clarity the unvarnished truth of God, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then trust that the Spirit of God will cause the Word of God to come alive in the hearts of the people of God. And so let us not be stingy with our seed sowing, but let us be generous. Let's continue on, verse 39. Back to John chapter 4, verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Now the Samaritan's woman's testimony was used by God to bring many people to Jesus. Now, first thing we notice there, it says many Samaritans. It does not say all the Samaritans. And so there were undoubtedly some people who ignored her, some who disregarded her message, right? some who were the seed sown along the path. But notice that this did not seem to discourage her. And in this instance, God blessed her perseverance, her testimony. And it was a fruitful time of ministry, such that the reapers were hot on the heels of the sowers. Scarcely were these seeds planted, and many of these people We're on their way out to meet Jesus. We, however, should content ourselves with the knowledge that this will not always be the case. The saying that Jesus quotes, one sows and another reaps, is frequently the way things go. And so let us take encouragement from this. The fact that someone doesn't change their mind on the spot, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus after their conversation with you, does not mean that your time was wasted. Do not be discouraged. No matter the response, it is never a waste to tell others about Christ. And I have at least four reasons for you here. Firstly, Regardless of the response you get from them in the moment, you don't know how God may yet work in that person's heart. It may simply have been your role to plant the initial seed. God may later grant the growth. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 6, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. While there have been times of extraordinary, extraordinary growth, right, where the reaper overtakes the sower, more often through church history, this is how things go. One sows and another reaps. One plants, one waters. God grants the growth. And so your conversation, which even though it didn't seem to go well to you, your conversation may simply have been the first step or an additional step in the process that God is working to bring this person to faith in his good timing. Secondly, 
telling others about Christ is never a waste because your obedience and courage pleases the Lord. For those who love God, what more reason could you ever need? Once again, for us, as we become more like Christ, we will love what he loves. We saw last week that for him to simply do his Father's will was food to the soul. And so serving God, knowing that we are pleasing our Heavenly Father, whom we love, heart, soul, mind, and strength, is powerfully motivating. This may be a challenge to give to you. That if the thought of doing something simply to please God is not powerfully motivating to you, you may need to check your heart. Do you love God as you ought to? Thirdly, telling others about Christ is never a waste because nothing we ever do for God is wasted. Nothing we do for God is ever wasted. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19, Do not lay up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves will break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. When we serve the Lord, we are storing up treasure in heaven. Now, what exactly treasure in heaven means or looks like I'm not entirely sure. When you think that heaven will be the full enjoying of God for all eternity for everybody who experiences it, um, you know, if that's the base package, then what more could ever be added on that? No, I, I don't know. But whatever it is, it's not small. Right? Jesus speaks often of, be, of us being motivated by heavenly rewards, by treasure in heaven. And whatever that means, we are to regard it as so wonderful, so meaningful, so worth pursuing, that it would cause us to jump for joy, even in the midst of persecution and slander. Blessed are you, Jesus says, when others revile you, and persecute you, and falsely utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Nothing you do for the Lord is ever wasted. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And so even if your sowing of seeds doesn't seem to make much of an impact down here, you will still reap a bountiful harvest of treasure in heaven. The missionary who spends his life faithfully sowing seeds, who in his lifetime never sees a single convert, right, thinks his time was wasted. But no, he will reap a harvest of eternal reward. Fourthly, telling others about Christ is never a waste because sharing your faith will strengthen your faith. 
We claim that what we have in the gospel is the greatest news in the world. We claim to believe that love for God and our neighbor ought to compel us to proclaim this news to others. And so when we see ourselves acting consistently with what we claim to believe, our own faith is strengthened. And the opposite of that is true as well. When we see ourselves acting inconsistently with what we claim to believe. Right? When we claim to believe these things but then never act in accordance with these beliefs, that creates a sort of cognitive dissonance within us. It can make us question ourselves. Do I really believe? If I do, then, then why don't I act on it? So when faith is shared, faith is strengthened. All right, now just to get very practical, how can the average Christian evangelize? Or what, what can we do to share the gospel with others? Now there are countless possible answers to this question, uh, but here are just a few suggestions for you. And I say all of these things not as an expert, but as somebody who also wants to grow in this area. Firstly, and I know this sounds like an evangelical cliche, uh, bear with me, but the first point is that we must be intentional. Right. Simply having it in your mind that you want to talk to others about faith is one of the most important first steps. For then, you will be looking for ways to bring the conversation around to something meaningful, and that's actually often not as hard as you might think. So whether it's during coffee or lunch break with your coworkers, uh, whether you're at a family gathering with your extended family you don't see that often, or perhaps you're at a wedding and you're at a table seated with strangers, there are many situations in which meaningful conversations are possible if we would simply be intentional about seeking them. All right, think of it at work. How often during coffee break do you not chat about what everybody did on the weekend? Right? Mention to them that you went to church, that you went to worship the Lord. And from that point, it's not a very hard thing to ask them if they went to church, if they're part of a church. If not, invite them to come with you or ask them about their beliefs. People are often very willing to talk about themselves and right there, you might have an open door. Secondly, if you're a mature believer, don't cut out of your lives the friends you have who don't know the Lord. While there is wisdom in separating yourself from those who you know will be a bad influence on you, if you are mature, then consider keeping connections with those who don't know the Lord. And if you're thinking, man, I, I don't know anybody like this. Everybody I know is a Christian. Well, then consider getting to know your neighbors. Invite them into your home for a meal or for coffee or dessert. I don't know, maybe host a community barbecue. Right? Invite people from your neighborhood, serve hot dogs, make connections. Or get involved in the community. I believe it is truly unfortunate that, is, that it is the apostate and unbelieving churches in this area 
that are seen as the face of the religious community in Altona. There are many opportunities for us if we would take them. So get involved. Go to community suppers. Uh, consider volunteering in a welcome program for newcomers to the community. Right? There are lots of opportunities to volunteer, to be involved, to make connections. Just think of this. How great would it be if the newcomers to our community would be met by someone who knew, understood, and was willing to proclaim the true and unvarnished gospel. So these are a few ideas, but uh, there, are, there are many, many more ways. Let's continue on. <clears throat> many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. Now, in quite an interesting development, if you remember the conflicts between the Jews and Samaritans, the Samaritans here invite this Jewish rabbi to stay with them. Now, this testifies to the fact that they had become truly convinced that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And so while Jesus was there, he continued to preach and teach, answer questions, and we see many more believed because of his word. The harvest was plentiful. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now that is not in any way to downplay the significance or the reliability of the woman's testimony but rather to confirm it. Right? The townspeople say, you had told us, and now we see for ourselves, and we have determined your testimony was true. And this indeed is the ordinary way that people come to faith in Christ. God is, of course, sovereign over salvation. He is the one who changes hearts. He is the one who makes alive those who are dead in sin. And while he can do the entire process all by himself, as he did with the Apostle Paul, right, knocking him off his horse, opening his heart, preaching directly to him, the ordinary way that people come to faith is this. As with the Samaritan woman and the townspeople, they are first introduced by others. As we read earlier this morning from Romans chapter 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Right. This is the ordinary means by which Christ brings his sheep into the fold. Faithful Christians like the Samaritan woman telling others the good news. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Not just the Savior of the Jews, not just the Savior of the Samaritans, but the Savior of the world. Christ purchased the nations by his blood. They are his inheritance, Psalm 2, verse 8. Christ has then commissioned his church to go and disciple those nations, to go bring him his inheritance, to seek those lost sheep, 
purchased from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation to bring in the fullness of the elect, a multitude so vast that it cannot be numbered, greater than the stars in the heavens or the number of the grains of sand on the seashore. And so, brothers and sisters, we must be faithful in this calling. We must proclaim the lordship of Christ over all of creation. We must bring the good news of the gospel, the news that Christ is the Savior of the world. And this is the message we must proclaim to all. We'll end with this gospel message. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Although you might think of yourself as a good person, when you are measured up against God's standard, it won't be about whether your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. The only question will be, are you a sinner? Have you broken God's holy law? James 2 verse 10 says that whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles in one point, fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. And so truly, we are all sinners. We have not loved God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not worshipped and glorified him according to what he deserves from us. We have not rendered to him the worship he requires. We have blasphemed against him. We have taken his name in vain. We have failed to be regular worshipers to keep the appointed times he has set. We have disrespected and dishonored God-appointed authority. Right? We have not perfectly honored our fathers and mothers, our civil leaders or our church leaders. We have hated others in our hearts, which Christ says is to be a murderer at heart. We have looked with lust upon those that we were not married to, which Christ says is to commit adultery of the heart. We have taken things that do not belong to us. We have lied. We have slandered others. We have not been content with our own estate, but we have been filled with all manner of covetousness. So who among us has perfectly kept God's law? In one way or another, I have broken all Ten Commandments time and time again. And so God is the judge. If he were to judge me based solely on what I have done, the terrifying reality is that I would be judged as a sinner. For I have broken his holy law. What does God say we deserve for our sin? The wages of sin is death. We deserve the wrath and curse of God, both in this life and that which is to come. I deserved the wrath of Almighty God. You deserve the wrath of Almighty God. And there was and is nothing that we could ever do to save ourselves. But the good news of the gospel is that the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now God, he is a righteous judge and he will never simply wink at sin and give sinners a free, free pass. He will not pervert justice. 
but a righteous judge will ensure that justice is done. And so, the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth, born of a woman, born under the law, and he lived a sinless life of perfect obedience to God's law, fulfilling every duty that God requires of man. He did love God perfectly. He never failed to obey. He never blasphemed. He never dishonored authority. He was neither a murderer nor adulterer at heart. He never stole. He never lied or slandered. He was never envious or covetous. Or covetous. He was tempted as ev- in every way as we are, yet without sin. He perfectly performed all that God requires of man. And he was then obedient unto death, even death on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for our sake. Upon him was placed all the sin of all of those who would ever trust in him. And the full weight of the wrath of God against that sin was borne by him upon the cross. Jesus drank that bitter cup down to the dregs. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. Christ rose to life and ascended to the right hand of the Father where he reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. The nations are his inheritance, the ends of the earth, his possession. He is the Savior of the world and he now commands all men everywhere to repent. The King of all things offers a royal pardon to all sinners who will repent and believe. For those who do, the promise is given that they will be accepted before God, not on the basis of what they have done, but on the basis of what Christ has done on their behalf. Those who are in Christ are forgiven because Christ died on the cross for their sins. Their sin was imputed to him, was counted to him, and he died as if he had committed those sins. He died as our substitute, our holy, unblemished sacrifice of atonement. And his life of perfect obedience to God's law is credited to them, credited to us. So that when we stand before God, we will stand clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And so for Christians, we will not be judged on the basis of what we have done, on the basis of our failure to keep God's law. God will not look at us and see our sin. He will instead see the perfect righteousness of his beloved son. And he will welcome us who come through Christ. And the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison will be for sinners like me and like you to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let us live in light of this glorious good news. Let us become an evangelistically minded people. 
let us proclaim the message to all creation that Jesus Christ is indeed the Savior of the world. Amen.